Welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Jason Beam. Jason, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. joined by Jason Beam. Jason, thank you very much for coming on. Jake, it's good to be on your show. I appreciate the invite. So you're obviously the host of the the Jason Beam Horse Racing Podcast and race caller at Colonial Downs, Grants Pass Downs. I hope I'm getting those correct. Yep. Uh, but you do have a unique uh, viewpoint and perspective on the, the overall racing and betting industry. So I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into some of that with you. How does, how does one like yourself get actively involved in, in this space and this industry? Uh, well, a series of fortunate events and some unfortunate events, I suppose. Uh, my, my dad was a gambler and I, so I grew up going to the races with him. I grew up outside of Seattle, Washington, and there was a track called Long Acres that was, I mean, five minutes from our house. So we would go down there during the spring and summer and just always took a liking to it. And, you know, I, am sure part of it was, I, I loved the game and part of it was that was, you know, dad time and dad and son time. And so, uh, you know, just very, entrenched in racing since I was a little kid and they closed that track when I was 12. And so we didn't have racing in Seattle for a few years and I kind of got away from it and, you know, high school doing, you know, baseball and girls and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, got away from it for a while. And then my dad actually got sick uh, into in 99. And so a lot of our, our last year or two together before he passed away was, was going to the track. And uh, after he died, I just kind of kept going and, uh, kind of stumbled into a, a an initial job at Emerald Downs, which is the newer track in Seattle, and um, kind of was off and running. And next thing I knew, I started practicing calling races and got a couple opportunities to fill in and got some jobs, and now here we are. So it sounds pretty all-encompassing then. Obviously, the betting side, the, the horses themselves, yep. we can talk a little bit about you know calling the races as well, but it doesn't sound like there was necessarily one draw card. It was the overall... Uh, aspect of horse racing in general that that dragged you in? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I was definitely into the betting part initially because that was where my dad's, you know, interest was. And, and so I, you know, I, when I was a little kid, I'd, my mom would give me 20 bucks. I'd bet two bucks a race, you know, on, on Sundays. And, you know, you generally just make a win bet or a show bet or, you know, just small stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, I was 10, so I wasn't really a, a deep thinker about uh, positive expectation and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was real fascinated. I, w- I wanted to be a jockey, which if you've seen me, I'm six, four and you know, 350. So that, that wasn't happening. But, uh, you know, as a kid, like I, th- I just thought it was, it was such a, it was such a big sport. Like you could get, you know, you didn't need a good ticket to be close to the field, like baseball. I mean, you could literally walk up to the rail and to the paddock for, you know, just the, the charge of admission. And so it just seemed so big. I mean, long acres looked so big and, um, yeah, I, I was just I was obsessed with the sport. I always liked the gambling part of it, got more into that obviously as, as I got older, but, uh, and then the race calling thing, you know, as a little kid, 
our, our announcer at Long Acres was this guy, Gary Henson, and he had this great gravelly voice. Here comes Captain Kondo on the outside. You know, his dad was a famous announcer, a guy named Harry Henson, and, and he kind of had his same style. But I would go home after the races, and our neighborhood was like a perfect oval. Like, it literally went in a big circle. And so uh, I would w- ride my bike around and I would do the calls from that day. And, you know, I'd get a stick and would whip my bike and, you know, here comes Sneakin' Jake rallying on the outside. That was actually one of the, one of the most popular horses when I was a kid was named Sneakin' Jake, by the way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And so I was always kind of fascinated by the announcing part of it. And, uh, there was a, a guy named Vic Stoffer who calls it Oaklawn Park right now. He, he had a call in 2005 of the American Oaks, a horse named Cesario. You can still find it on YouTube. And I just thought it was like the greatest race call. Like the hair on my arm stood up and I went and bought binoculars the next day. And I was like, I know how to, I could do this. Like I've heard these guys do it. I mean, I had no broadcasting training of any kind. I just went up to the the roof and practiced and practiced and kind of started emailing some announcers who I'd kind of come in contact with on various chat boards. This was the the time of the the chat boards, pre-Twitter and all that. And uh, and a lot of guys gave me help. Like they gave me good suggestions. And uh, Vic actually was the one who told me that a place named River Downs was looking for somebody. And I had just called uh, a few races at Portland Meadows where I was practicing. They were nice enough to let me, you know, have a couple races just to to give it a try. And and I did okay and made a tape. And uh, Vic, yeah, Vic told me they were hiring at River Downs. I sent in a tape and uh, and and somehow got the job. And I got the job at Portland right at that next year. So I was doing those two for a couple years. I was at Portland for ten years total. And uh, did Louisiana Downs last year? Did Monmouth uh, as a fill-in, and uh, now I'm at uh, Colonial and Grants Pass. Uh, you know, mostly I, I don't know full time, but I, I'm, I'm calling a good chunk of the year now. Do you know what it is about race calling and announcing that that makes it so popular? Because so many people, I'm sure, can remember famous uh, callers, let's say, about a certain race, or even in sports, certain announcers or color commentators talking about different things. And you know, I love Michael Buffer and Bruce Buffer and know what, you know, words they've trademarked. And it's an interesting part of the world, a tiny little corner of the world that often many people have their own perspective and, and coverage on, but it is many, many people that are distinctly interested in it. Yeah. I think that it certainly, Vic Stoffer once told me that he said, you know, great, great races and great horses make for great race calls. And I think that there's some truth in that, but obviously, you know, you have to be ready for the moment. And, you know, there's been great moments that happened in sports where the call wasn't all that great, but, uh, you know, usually the biggest moments in sports or racing or whatever, like you do remember the call because it's kind of synonymous with that, whether it was some great line. I mean, you know, the do you believe in miracles was like, you know, the greatest, line that people associate with an event ever and and will for for decades to come and so i think it's just part of that it is a part of that uh you know experience and and our memories and all that kind of stuff i know i know for me there's a lot of nostalgia with the race calling just because you know it's memories of childhood and it's you know it's that distinct kind of uh staccato call and now with social media i mean so many of the you know not only race callers but announcers and other sports you know they're kind of out there a little more and people can message them and people get you know you interact with folks and i think there there's a little more accessibility it's not so much just a voice behind the curtain because like growing up i couldn't have told you what gary henson looked like at long acres like i never saw him he was just he was the wizard of oz right behind the curtain yeah absolutely and what type of skill is it? I mean, it sounds obvious and it's, you need to have certain dulcet tones and a certain way of going about it, but it's probably an art and an art form in and of itself. Take us through what that sort of uh, part of your career, let's say, or profession, what does that look like? 
to me, I've, the memorization part is, is I think, one of the most important, if not the most important. And, I, and I've, you know, I've been in the booth with a lot of different guys. I've seen some guys who really pour over it and try to memorize the name. Like I personally use colored pencils and I color the saddle towel colors on one side of the program and the jockey colors on another side because you kind of want to use the jockey colors as your prior or your main identification purpose because, A, they're usually pretty different from horse to horse. And, B, the saddle towels, when they're kind of lined up two or three, in a row you can't see them very well so uh jockeys caps and colors are, are the best ways and you know i want to have a field so memorized that throughout the race i don't have to look at my program unless i really want some little nugget if i want to mention the rider if, you know if i see him make a good move and maybe i forgot who the rider was or sometimes you just you know you might see a, a flash of color on the outside moving up and you're like oh god who is that a lime green oh it's so and so you know so it acts as a bit of a cheat sheet helping with the memorization but if you're not looking at the race and you're looking at your program because you can't remember the name, you know, it's just so easy to miss stuff. It's so easy to get behind in a race. Uh, and, and you don't want to do that. You kind of, I, I don't think you want to be ahead of the race either. I really think you want to be, uh, right with it. And, uh, and I think the memorization is a really, really big part of it. If you go to any announcer's booth before a race, they're, they're just sitting there staring at each of the horses, trying to memorize, memorize, memorize. And, uh, I just think it's, it's such an important part of that job. And, you know, there, you, you kind of build up a vocabulary to go with, with different things that can happen during a race and out on the race course. And that's why a lot of times if something really bonkers happens, you'll hear the announcer get kind of perplexed because they just don't have anything ready for that particular moment. And I guess that's the same in sports too, right? I mean, you'll, I always joke that like the biggest crutch line for sports announcers is, are you kidding me? Like uh, every time I hear somebody say that, I think, they weren't ready for that moment and for, for what happened. Uh, cause you hear it from a lot of different guys and I know a couple guys have kind of made that their trademark. And so, uh, I don't know that it works for them, but, um, but, but I've noticed stuff like that. I mean, there was a guy named Luke Kreitboss who used to call it Churchill and, uh, just the, the greatest guy. And he, he passed away in uh, 2008, I think it was, but, I remember sitting with him and it was my, I was driving to Cincinnati to go to River Downs, my first like real announcing job. And I was sitting with him in Phoenix at the track there and, He's calling a race, and on the far turn, he, he I noticed he would say, oh, winding around the far turn. He really drew it out, and I was looking at him, and his eyes were looking straight down at the program, and, and I kind of asked him about it, and he told me, he goes, you're going to find little ways to cheat so that people don't know that you're scrambling, and you know whether it's reading the internal fractions or you know using a, a line like that, like I've certainly done that, where I'll, you know, I'll go, they go winding around. Uh, in fact, I'll use exactly his words, uh, and it's like, okay, who the hell's that up there with the purple cap? That's the seven. That's canon you know, memories, and, and, and then you go on with it. And so it's, it's fun to kind of learn those little tricks of the trade and, uh, and stuff like that. But you're, you're right. I mean, it's that my favorite part of it is that it is a craft and it's something you get to work on and try to improve on and, you know, add stuff. And it changes over the years, like in the eighties and the nineties and even early two thousands, like catchphrases were like a really big deal. Like you had to have your down the stretch, they come, or they would need to sprout wings. Like you had to have your little lines and now, and, and it was like that with sports center too, right? Like every sports center anchor had, their little catchphrases. And now that that's kind of gone away. Uh, the big trend in racing announcing right now seems to be like puns of the names, which, which I don't really care for, but uh, a lot of guys like to do that. And, but it, it's definitely more of a, uh, a sh I, I think the better callers right now are the guys who play it a little more straight and aren't, aren't, uh, you know, trying to do anything too over the top. Is that right? I was going to ask you about that. What, what is the overall intent of the race caller and does it vary between, 
you know, major race days versus, sure. uh, you know, a, a early in the week. Because I, I remember watching Tis the Law more recently, and yeah. if I didn't see the vision, it would have felt like it was a exciting, terrific race going on. And yep. if I watched it on mute, it was probably pretty boring. So you know, that's <laughs> obviously, you know, part of the part of the, the job probably is the excitement factor. But I've always, you know, especially when I've had a bet on a horse race, I want to kind of have a race caller that knows what my bet is and what I want and what I'm looking for and, and try and tell me that which is obviously probably a long time into the future but do you have to vary your approach by race by race day is it is it different depending on you know if the favorites four to one into into evens are you yeah. thinking about different things i think i think it it 100 percent it changes uh with the day i mean the the you know the general consensus is the bigger the race usually the more worked up and excited you get i i take a little bit of the opposite approach early on in those races i you know usually and part of that's nerves right like you know i called maximum security's first race after the derby last year in monmouth and and i knew for a fact like this is going to be the most watched race i've ever called like not even close and i remember specifically telling myself early in the call like just go slow go slow don't get too excited. He's probably going to win by 20 lengths. You don't want to be screaming like a banshee. So, of course, I'm going slow, going slow. And then they turn for home, and this horse king for a day comes right up to him. And it's like, you know, I had like three or four lines, you know, written down on my program just in case. You know, I, I, wanted, it, I, I wanted it to be very reserved because I, I knew it was not a huge stakes race. It was just kind of his next step to the Haskell. And then, of course, he gets beat. <laughs> And so it, it throws everything I had planned out and it actually made it more exciting because it was a more exciting race. But yeah, I mean, your average Thursday, you know, six horse claimer on the, on the dirt, you're probably not going to get as worked up and, and obviously probably as prepared and informed as you would for, you know, the Haskell or, or, or some of these graded stakes races that go on in the weekend. But I always feel bad, like the tracks that have like one big race, which is a lot of them, um, you know, if you get a crummy race, a lot of the guys will still go real crazy with, you know, screaming and have their big lines ready and everything like that, even though the race maybe is a little bit of a, of a dull one. So it, uh, it certainly varies from, from person to person, how they kind of want to deal with that and, you know, their, their level of excitement they want to do. I mean, I, I really try to, I mean, I'm a little bit of a goofball on social media and, and on my podcast, I try to have fun and all that. But when it comes to race calling, I'm, I like to be a little more of a, I, I always say just the facts, ma'am, and, and, and try to really, because I know that, you know, betters don't want to listen to a bunch of shtick and th- you know, there's a good chance after every horse race that a very good sizable majority of the people are throwing down tickets that were losers. And if you're sitting there rubbing it into them, uh, you know, to me, that's annoying. I mean, I do think that every once in a while humor or something witty sprinkled in really does add to it, but I think it has to be sporadic. Uh, I, I think people get, I think it gets old really quick. And I remember Luke Kreitbos, who I mentioned earlier, he told me once, he said, you know, I always hear these guys get so excited when a 50 to one or a 99 to one shot wins, you know, cause it's exciting to see big prices and stuff. He goes, but you got to remember, he goes, 99% of the people listening to you just lost. He's like, do, do you, do you want to be screaming for that 1% who of course should be happy, but he goes like, don't be rubbing it into 99% of the people out there. So I've always been real cognizant of that when a 40 or 50 to one shot wins, you know, I'll state it cause it's certainly the the main part of the story at that point, but you don't want to be, Oh, 50 to one shot wins. <laughs> boom, You know, stuff like that. So what do you do in the disaster situations? I'm sure you've had at least one over the years where oh, you yeah. lost track of things. You've forgotten names. There might be a horse. that's about to hit the front that you you have no idea what the, the horse is called or the jockey. What do you do in those scenarios? I'll tell you what, there is no slower time in my life than when, 
the horse on the lead. And it's only, I mean, I, I, I knock on wood. I pride myself on being really good at the memorization part of things. And last year I had really the first time I've ever called the wrong horse uh, for a good chunk of the race. Like, and it wasn't even a good chunk of the race. It was literally from the eighth pole to just inside the finish line. The horse was inside of another horse who was way bigger than it. So I just, all I could see was one little swatch of blue color from the jocks. And, and I just said the wrong horse and I called it the wrong horse for like two or three strides. And then finally saw the saddle towel peek out. I was like, Oh God, no, you know, it's so-and-so. And all you can do is just, you know, swallow at them. But when, when there's a moment you know, in Colonial, we run at night, so it's a little tougher to see when they're on the turn. The lights are great and everything, but, I, you know, I'm 40 and my vision's just not as good as it used to be. And uh, when, when, when there are those moments when you're searching to see who is who, it just seems like, oh, my God, I'm pausing. I'm not saying anything. Who is that? Da, da, da. And then you get it. And then you listen back to the replay, and it's like a half a second, and it's never as bad as it is. It's always way worse in your mind than it is, you know, kind of in the actual race call because it just – to me, it, it seems like it all unfolds pretty fast, but I, I used to have a real problem with going too fast. Like, you know, so-and-so on the outside, colonial video going to the front, John, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And I'd listen back, and I'm like, God, I'm going way too fast. But in my head, it seemed like I was doing it appropriate. So I, I've always had a sign in my booth that says slow down just to kind of remind myself to to check myself a little bit. But w when you're when you're scrambling or, you know, a horse falls and you can't see who it is, like those times are scary because – like I said, two or three seconds away from the actual race feels like an eternity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the one thing I've always found fascinating, having lived lived in different parts of the world and, and listened to a lot of different race callers, is they're not only unique in certain jurisdictions, but if you if you pull out a race from Australia and then one in the US and then something in Europe, they seem to be totally different styles of race calling. Yep. Do you are you a aficionado of how things work in, in different jurisdictions and have you thought about why they might be different and, and how they I guess are appropriate to the local uh you know jurisdiction yeah it's interesting because I mean like the the I would say the Australia callers they have a they all have a very similar style it's pretty fast paced it's it's kind of one steady beat throughout uh there's not a lot of kind of pauses or resetting uh, I always look at, you know, a race as kind of a multiple act play, right? Like if it's a, if, if it's a mile race, you know, there's the first quarter mile, there's them settling onto the backstretch, there's the run into the far turn, and then there's the home stretch. And they usually all kind of have their own little beaten rhythm. Uh, usually it's a little fast in the early going because everybody's sorting themselves out by the time they get to the backstretch, everybody's kind of found their spot. And so now you're slowing it down a little bit, which, um, you know, there's and there's generation stuff too, right? Like the guys who came around in the '70s and '80s, they kind of just called a chart through the race. Like so and so's in front by two. It's two, you know, three lengths back to this one, four lengths back to this one. There wasn't a lot of uh, editorializing going on. And Trevor Denman here in the states kind of changed that. He was more the guy who would start to tell more of the story, and then Tom Durkin, of course, took that and, and ran with it. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's definitely and it's just, a lot of it's just influence, right? Like you grow up listening to a certain type of thing, you're going to be you know, obviously when you first start, you're probably going to be very in tune to how it, how it goes. And it's interesting because I don't think that my style is really close to the people I listened to the most growing up. Um, you would think that it kind of would be, but, um, it just didn't necessarily work out like that. But I, I certainly, I mean, there's, there's big differences between, you know, here, here it's always, you know, the foreign guys or the domestic guys. And there's certainly a big difference, but the domestic or the foreign guys who come over here, I think end up having an American cadence and style just with a foreign accent. So <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. So 
as a race caller, how much do you need to know about the betting side of things? Do you do you need to know what's going on in the last you know sixty seconds of betting? Obviously, in the US with with the tote pools, things can change and do change pretty rapidly at at certain times. Is that part of the gig, or is it depend you know who the race caller is and whether or not they want to have a a betting component to it? I think it depends. There, there's a, there's a lot of guys who I don't think watch it all that much. I will I will write or fully say that I don't watch the betting as much as a race caller as I do as a fan or horse player. Like because I'm so focused on memorizing the names and doing all that, and I just want I want to be accurate of what's happening out there at that moment. And so um, there's been time. You know, I definitely want to know, of course, who the favorite is, and I want to have a pretty good idea. But I'm I'm usually not following too closely the trends and stuff going on because, um, you know, I, if you listen to Australia and other places like that they'll have analysts who are talking about all of that literally until the last horse goes in the gate here in the States. Most broadcasts don't do that. Usually the analysts are kind of off the air by the time the horses come onto the track. A few places uh, will, will continue to have, you know, discussion up until the gate loads. And obviously, you know, the Fox shows and, and TVG and stuff will, will have analysts talk all the way up, but the race callers here really just, it kind of, your, your work starts when they go into the gate and it ends when they hit the finish line. There's really not a lot of, uh, commentary that's usually left for the actual commentators. So, um, you know, I, I definitely don't fall or don't discuss, I mean, I'll talk about a favorite or, you know, if a horse is taking crazy money or something like that, but for the most part, I've always viewed my job more to tell the story of what's happening in the race and, and others can interpret that, you know, before and afterwards. So tell me about Jason, the fan, what's, what do you get out of horse racing? That isn't, you know, a profession, an art form, a craft of race calling, are you interested in all different aspects from the administration through to betting through to the horses and breeding or what things pique your interest when talking about racing generally? I'm frustrated by the management and executive <laughs> side decision makers. Uh, no, I, I, for me, a lot of it is community at this point, right? Like all of my friends and colleagues and everything are in this business and it, and it is very much one of those things where it becomes lifestyle much more than occupation. I mean, you know, on days off, you're still following it. Whereas, you know, if I, if I went to, you know, if I was working on a production line, I'm probably not following production lines on my Saturdays and Sundays. And so, um, you know, a lot of it is community and a lot of it is, is friends and that kind of stuff. Um, there's certain, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty clueless on the breeding side of things. I mean, I have a general, uh, following of it, but my, my, my interest in racing has always been the betting side of things and the sport itself. But, uh, I've never really gotten fascinated by the, uh, the side of the breeding things. In fact, on my podcast last week, we kind of did a, uh, a little bit of a one one in terms of pedigree handicapping, because it's just something I don't follow or, or know all that much about, you know, and, and with the announcing thing and even the podcast, you know, I, I'm a creative person. I like to write. I like to, you know, make music, all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoy the creative outlets that announcing and doing the podcast give me. Uh, it's something to work on. It's, you know, it's projects. It's uh, it's an adrenaline rush. I mean, when I, I announced for, I think, seven straight months last year between Monmouth Colonial and, and Gulfstream Park West. And like when I got home back to Seattle, I remember having like this real like, what am I going to do for kind of my Jones right now? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, uh, it just seemed so strange to not have that adrenaline rush multiple times a week of getting to announce. And so, uh, it took me a while to kind of get used to, you know, life without that for a little bit. And so now that I'm kind of back into that for the summer months, I've, uh, I'm trying to become a little bit aware of, you know, of how I more constructively can, can, uh, replace those, uh, those feelings if, and when I need to. 
So fixed odds horse racing might come to the US. What does that mean? As I say those words to you, I know it's going to be interesting to see how it is unveiled and how quickly and, and what the spread looks like. But do you think that's positive? Do you think it's negative? Do you think it's a wait and see? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know a whole lot about it because we've never had it here. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not, it's never a type of betting I've really, you know, participated in. Uh, my, my general rule on things when it comes to gambling is I try to learn and listen to people who are a lot smarter than I am because uh, I think that usually they have much more informed takes. And that's not just for betting, that's for everything in life, right? And so, you know, a lot of the smart guys I know are not necessarily in favor for it. I mean, the parimutuel system, I think, is really awesome and it's a neat way to betting i don't think that, like i feel like if racing had more competitive takeout we have enough types of bets we have a lot of interesting types of bets i don't think we need more bets and so you know for the the folks who are really singing the praises of fixed odds wagering it's the people who get very upset when a, they bet a horse at eight to one and then it goes off at four to one and wins and they are getting back four to one instead of eight to one. And I get that. I mean, that's about the crappiest feeling there is in racing other than losing. And so, but what I worry about is, you know, what you guys have seen on the sports side of things is it really doesn't, you know, it doesn't create a good environment for people who are winning players because, what's the incentive to take their action? I mean, the way the parimutuel game is right now, you want to take everybody's action and the most action. And, and we want the most people betting and you really don't, I mean, the, the people always say like, Oh, the track wants favorites to win. The more people wins. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think the track wants good competitive racing and, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may in terms of who wins and who loses. Cause it, you know, it really doesn't affect them all that much. Of course they want their bigger players to remain in the game, but with, you know, with the kind of takeout racing has, I don't know how true that even is. So, um, you know, I, I worry about, I, I think everybody thinks fixed odds wagering is going to be like some great thing for racing. It's going to stop the late odds drops. You're locking in your price. And I, and I get how that stuff's good, but, um, I also wonder how they'll treat the winning players. And, and I kind of worry about that. So when you think about your community, I know you have, you know, plenty of close friends who are on the betting side. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that they've been able to teach you over the years? Obviously, uh, coming from your perspective and, and hearing what people who are doing it full time or have done it for a long time, what are some of the things that they've able they've been able to impart? And I know you know certainly some of the podcast episodes with with Tony Zhu and, and guys like that I've listened to multiple times to to get their thoughts on on horse racing and betting on horse racing. It's fascinating, so I'm interested in what you've picked up along the way. Uh, well, I always start anytime somebody asks me about this. Uh, you were, uh, I think you and I are actually two of the only people to interview inside the pylons and, uh, he's, yeah. he's a, a, he's a close friend of mine and, and, you know, I, I get to pick his brain a lot, which for someone who wants to hear about gambling, I mean, he's far and away the, the sharpest horse racing betting mind I've ever encountered by a pole and, and the, which is horse racing term for, you know, a long way. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, it's been, he, for me, I had a light bulb moment with him because I mean, when I when I grew up, all of the teaching, everything about it was handicapping. Like that's all. You, like it was all about handicapping and and picking winners. And and I mean, literally, like the book that started it all for everybody was Picking Winners by Andy Byer. And you know, we were raised that if you can find the winner in each race, which of course, I mean, if you can pick the winner every race, you're going to make money in this game, or at least you should. But nobody can. And 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 you know, even the best at it are right 35 to 38% of the time, which by the way is the same percentage the public is right with the favorite. And so, you know, I, I, I grew up 
basically learning that handicapping was what was important. And if, if a horse is four to five, but he looks like the winner, that's who you bet. Even if he's, you know, should be two to one, you don't even care about that. You just want to pick the winner. And as I was coming up, you know, into my early twenties and stuff, that was kind of the early days of TVG. And, and I don't like to slag on them too much, but like all of their bets were basically always pick fours and it was always, you know, 24, 36, $48 tickets. They were all kind of structured the same way. And there was really never any actual betting theory discussion. It was just like, Oh, I think the two and the seven can win this race. So I'm going two and seven. I think the three, four, eight can win leg two. <laughs> and, but, but that was what everybody knew. And that's what everybody, you know, kind of was, was taught. There was never I never heard a discussion on ticket construction or, you know, expect or EV or any of that kind of stuff until literally three years ago. And, and, and I mean, I'm someone who was, you know, lived very, and breathed it for a long time. Yeah, exactly. And nobody ever talked about it. And I remember I was at the NHC, which is the national handicapping championship in Vegas, and it's a $2 win place contest. So it's really not a, a betting contest as much as it is a handicapping contest. In fact, it's called the handicapping contest. So, I mean, it lives up to its name, but I remember seeing inside the pylons there and I was talking to him and I said, how, how, how's your day going? He goes, man, this is not my thing. He's like, I don't know how to pick winners. He didn't say it like that. He's, but he said, he goes, you know, I'm not good at picking winners. And I go, you're a professional horse player. What do you mean you're not good <laughs> at picking winners? And I remember he looked at me and he goes, no. He's like, I'm good at finding losers and bad favorites and, and, and this kind of stuff. And I just remember like initially going, this guy's a crackpot. Like, what is he talking about? And, you know, the more I got to talk to him and then when I did those interviews with him, you know, you become aware that like, you know, his entire thing is looking for good bets and good opportunities to you know, be against favorites and, uh, you know, structuring his tickets around a sequence. So he is away from where the masses are. And when he's right, he's getting paid more than he maybe should have. And, you know, when he is right, he's really getting paid and, uh, and a million other things. And so, you know, I, I, I give him full credit in terms of opening my eyes because I just had, my education was all handicapping is the only thing, you know, if you handicap better, you'll win. You know, I, I could, I could handicap probably okay, just as, as good as your average guy. And, uh, and yet I was getting clobbered for years because I was, you know, playing these huge spread tickets that, you know, I'd be playing pick fours and pick fives. And if I got lucky and hit, I'm getting two to one, three to one, four to one. And it's like, those bets are really hard to hit. And if you're only getting three to one on them, I mean, racing is unique, right? Like it's one of the few betting games that has combinations on your minimum bet. You know, you bet a sports game, you know, you're betting $50 to win, you know, 45 or whatever it is. And, and there, of course there's parlays and stuff, but with racing, you can have combinations, you know, I mean, God, you can have in, infinite combinations in terms of how many numbers of horses are in each leg for just that base wager of 50 cents. So a 50 cent bet quote unquote, you know, the ticket could be $200 and it can actually pay less than that. I mean, it is one of the few games where you, you can have a winning ticket and not make a profit because of the use of combinations. So it's a, it's a different, I think you kind of have to have a little different mathematical approach to it. And when, and I was using no mathematical approach. I mean, I was like, well, my budget's 72 bucks for this bet. So I'm going to get as many combinations as I can for 72. And hopefully I hit, and then I'd hit for, you know, 180 bucks. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, I made a hundred and, you know, $110 right there. That's great. Right. And then I think about it, I go, if I could have bet on a six to five shot and made the same money and only had to win one race. And and people, I just don't think, think about a lot of that because the, the exotic wagers, the pick fours, pick fives have become so popular 
And I still see it every day on social media. And, you know, it's not my place to go correct anybody. But on my show, we certainly spend a lot of time talking about, you know, looking at these kind of things. I mean, I did a bit of a diatribe yesterday about, you know, not every two to one shot is the same as every two to one shot, you know, in a pick four or pick five. If you're betting them to win. Yeah, it's the same. But, you know, it might be that one of them is, you know, a slight favorite in a field of 12 where it's kind of a wide open race. And the other one might be, you know, a second choice behind a two to five favorite. And if you beat that two to five favorite now in the pick fours, that 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 two to one shot might actually be playing a little bit longer because so many people are going to be singled to that two to five shot. And so, uh, you know, little things like that were just not ever talked about. So I'm really glad that, you know, that ITP kind of opened my eyes to that. And, and, you know, like I said, because of being friends with him, you know, I've gotten to continue to pick his brain and, you know, we were doing a zoom chat together for a lot of months during the pandemic and, you know, he would sit and be playing and would talk about his, his theories and how to look at these things. And, you know, it's just, and Tony Joe, who you mentioned, same kind of thing. Like these guys are looking at the game through a different lens than most folks. And, uh, and when they allow you a, an opportunity to kind of take a peek through that lens, it, it's really, really fascinating. And honestly, for me, it reinvigorated my interest in, in racing and, and talking about the betting side of racing because it was like this new it was like an, it was like getting, you know, like if you're a Harry Potter fan, all of a sudden, you know, the author releases a 500 page brand new Harry Potter book. And it's like, I mean, how excited are you to, to go in there and dig in and, and learn about that stuff that you really just didn't have access to because you didn't know about it. Yeah, I can, I can hear it and feel it in your voice. And it's one of those interesting things. Cause I was going to ask who were the, the leading voices or leading faces on the betting side in the, the U S racing scene over the last few decades. But it sounds like if that's had that type of impact on you, who's lived and breathed racing, been involved in the the industry for a long time as a participant and as a fan and everything else. I wonder, or I'll ask you, what type of impact do you think ITP and Tony and, and others who have potentially contrarian viewpoints on betting, maybe it's better described as a as a more uh, accurate way to look at gambling if you want to try and win. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you think that would be received by the masses? And maybe that can be weaved in with who were the voices and faces faces in the past and and is there a space for for a new fresh voice? I mean, I, I get emails on a the 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 inside the pylons episodes. We did two episodes with him. One was like you know just an hour and a half sit down. The other was kind of a Q and A type thing. But I mean, they still to this day get four or five hundred downloads a month, and and it's been two years I think since we did them. And so they're they're far and away our our top episodes. And I will still get you know messages from people you know, oh, I, you know, it just, it really sunk in what you were talking, what you guys talked about and what he talks about. And, you know, they, they'll, they'll send me, you know, there were, I got a, a message from a guy the other day who said, he told me, he said he had listened to those episodes like five times. And, and he said, you know, almost, he goes, I almost listened to him, you know, like in a stalkerish kind of way, but he, you know, he's a, he's a, a public, uh, you know, or he's a average income guy, right. To just, uh, you know, got wife, kids, the whole nine yards. And he and he and he plowed a hit for ninety thousand on a seventy dollar bet, and and he was talking about you know, one of Pylons' theorems is you know kind of creating hurdles for yourself. He's like you don't want necessarily an easy path to these these big hits because the easy path is the chalky way and it's the way where you know you're or you're playing a huge ticket and you're not getting separation. Like you need to have you know, to clear a couple of these hurdles sometimes to have tickets that are really, really paying significantly more than they're maybe worth and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this guy had made two somewhat, I mean, two five to one singles in a pick five and he was right. 
And then, you know, he, he had a couple spread legs where he was against favorites and he was right. And he literally turned 70 bucks into 90,000. And it wasn't like some crazy lucky thing. Like they were all, you know, five to one, there was an 11 to one, I think, a, a you know, a eight to one, like it wasn't anything nuts, but he just really stuck to his opinions, made a good narrow ticket and, and clobbered it. And he sent this message. He's like, you guys, I'm just so thankful that you guys had, had, you know, and when I say you guys, I mean, it's, it's, it's ITP. It's not me. I'm just the, the vehicle for, for his uh, thought on that. But, you know, he was, just, he was just so thankful to kind of shift how he thought, thought and saw about the game. And, uh, and I get those messages all the time about those two particular shows and, and sometimes just about stuff that I will uh, take. But I, I mean, I always am the first to say I'm a disciple of the, uh, the school of pylons, uh, you know, as much as I can be. And so, uh, I mean, it's, I think that there is a real, growing interest in that. And, you know, I, I wrote a blog a while back about, about poker and horse racing, because in poker, I see people, you know, they will seek out feedback on, on their hands and, and people be like, okay, I had King Tana hearts, you know, flop, da, da, da. What, what should I have done? What did I do wrong? Rip me apart. Like they actually actively seek out feedback on what they're doing wrong. And in racing, it's so much not the case. Like everybody kind of thinks they're doing things right. And there's not a whole lot of, Hey, uh, what do you think about this? Kind of tear me a new one on how I played this, uh, this early pick four. And I actually have a buddy who has kind of started to do that with me. Like he'll send me screenshots like, okay, you know, I really liked this 10 horse. He was a price. How do you think I attack this race? You know, and I'll offer up some thoughts on it. And, uh, and he's really thriving on getting that kind of constructive feedback. And it's just interesting to me that in racing betting, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that. A lot of people seem to just, you know, think that, you know, they know everything or that you're a hater. If you say something, you know, Oh, you know, what if you would have done this? Maybe you'd have won twice as much or spent half or what da da da. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to me that racing, there is not a lot of that where it seems like poker people are really actively trying to kind of get criticized. And when I say criticized, I mean, constructive criticism uh, about their play in an effort to try to get better. But I think there is, some of that happening in racing. And, and I think it's a good thing because I, I think those are good conversations to have. And I think people are finding that they're becoming uh, better players. I don't know if they're becoming winning players, but I mean, you know, losing less is obviously better than losing more. Totally. And I guess what, what made you go down this path? Because obviously you've been involved in the industry for a long time and you said it might've been the last three or four years that you started to focus in on some of these different angles and aspects, why not beforehand? What's it going to take for others in the industry to maybe tackle some of these questions and problems? And they don't even have to agree. I think yeah. one of the best things about some of these topics is they are contrarian. They don't have a 100% hit rate, um, but it's it's worth talking about, I think, anyway. And I, I certainly commend you for going down that path. But why why did it take so long? What was the barriers and hurdles to getting there? And do you think it's something that's going to be more longer term for you? I mean, it took so long just because I didn't know. I mean, I, I just, I was ill-informed and, and wasn't educated and wasn't, I, I mean, I certainly sought out improving my knowledge of racing and betting and stuff like that. I, I read all the materials that were available. They just weren't, uh, in my opinion, necessarily, uh, you know, one, <laughs> ones that I thought were, were all that good. They certainly didn't, uh, you know, lead to much benefit on my, my personal uh, play back in the day. So, uh, you know, like I said, I, I don't think there was a lot of voices 
you know, because in a, in a paramutual game, another thing is, is, you know, is it in the best interests of the sharp players to, to you know, kind of open up their thoughts and ideas? Because, you know, if anything, you're making the competition stronger. And I know, you know, I have friends that are professional sports bettors and, you know, they've said that, you know, things are a lot tougher now to win than they were before. I mean, you were, you know, you used to be up against, you know, Joe Sunday who thought he could pick the Jets game every week. And, and now you're up against a lot of guys that have a lot of information and, and racing's a little bit of that too, right? I mean, everybody has access to replays now, charts. I mean, they're interactive at this point. I mean, you talk to a lot of the old sharp players and I mean, they used to have logs of VHS tapes and make their own notes and make their own speed figures. And uh, it's just, it's tougher to win and field sizes down, you know, the top, trainers tend to dominate a little bit more favorites are winning more so the opportunities are are certainly tougher i mean you got to be you got to really really try to put yourself ahead of everybody and differentiate yourself and a lot of people are all having kind of the same information so uh but as far as going forward i i mean i i would hope it seems to me that you know with podcasts i mean obviously everybody can kind of have a a platform and an opinion now and it does seem that i don't think the mainstream folks are having these discussions as much as more of the underground. And by, I mean, I, God, I work for Churchill Downs. I'm not, I'm not underground anymore, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I, I think, you know, people that aren't the television or the real, real big names, I don't think they're necessarily having the, you know, the ticket construction and smart bet conversations as much, but there's a, there's a number of folks that I think on that kind of next level, uh, down in terms of people that have voices who are having those conversations who are, you know, doing more in that arena. And, and I think that they're being rewarded with more listenership, loyal listenership. I mean, we've seen a pretty good increase in our, our downloads over the last couple of years. And to be honest, it was like our, our show had a good growth the first year, but we were doing a lot of, you know, game shows and trivia and, you know, a little wackier stuff and just trying to kind of trying to make a name for myself. But, um, you know, we, we had a plateau of like six months where it just same amount of listeners every day. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years ago, we started seeing this nice uptick in growth. And honestly, during the pandemic, we've seen, uh, I would say probably, God, about a 33 or 34% jump. Wow. And I've, I've gotten a bunch of emails from people who are like, yeah, I just, I got back into racing over the pandemic because racing had a little bit of a monopoly, right. Yeah. For, for a yeah. couple of months and even kind of still does. I mean, there's certainly not the sports betting options that there were. And, and, you know, people can debate whether or not racing took advantage of that at all. But I, I will say that I had a number of emails from people who were like, yeah, I discovered the show during the pandemic or I kind of got back into racing. And, um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's, there's certainly opportunity for audience and hopefully people are, are, uh, are finding what I'm doing and what some other people are doing as far as talking about this stuff. Interesting that the feedback seems to be that they do, uh, uh, you know, and what I, I'll get emails from people who will disagree with stuff I say, but they're, you know, they're being respectful about it and they're, and they're sharing their opinion. You know, like there's a, in horse racing, whenever there's a, you know, somebody goes all on a race, we call it the all button. And I I've always been very anti all button. And I hear from a lot of people like, well, the only way you can get a big price is, is using the all button. And, you know, my theory is if you really think a race is right for a long shot and, you know, you think that anybody can win, why are you even using the top favorites or two favorites or five favorites for that matter? Like you're going 12 deep and, you know, 50% of the time you're going to get the first or second choice. Like if you think this is one of those times, it's not like, why are you, you know, multiplying your ticket cost by 12 if you think it's going to be one of these five or six bombs, like only use the five or six and, uh, you know, but there's, there's a real desire in racing for betters that I've seen to be alive, to hit. And, uh, there, there's a lot of fear of losing, which is crazy. Cause it's a game that you lose at 
a lot more than you win at. And so I, I feel like everybody should be kind of used to losing part that you shouldn't be as scared of it, but there definitely is a, a big, big fear of losing and people will throw in favorites out of the worry of, of getting beat by him. And I always say like, okay, let's say the favorite does beat you. Like, what are you really missing out on? Not much money, you know, unless you're, unless your other two horses you love are 20 to one or 10 to one or something like that. Like, you know, if your horses are seven to two and three to one in the first two legs, like, are you really going to miss that much if you get the even money shot in the third leg? No. But if you win, I mean, come on. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I don't know if you get to roam around the, the racetracks and interact with the, the local fans, but if you do, what's, what does that crowd look like? What type of person is there? Are they very much in the newspaper with a pencil circling different things and then going up to the window and probably placing pretty bad bets? Yeah, I mean, it certainly depends on, on, on what track, right? I mean, there's, you know, OTBs have a little bit more of a similar populace amongst them. You know, the older guys that have been going out for 40 years and, and, and yeah, I don't think a lot of those guys are, are making sharp bets, but, uh, you know, like colonial where I work in Virginia, they have a really, really diverse crowd that comes for the, the live racing events, be it age, be it race, be it whatever. I mean, whatever your descriptor is, uh, it, it's not, I don't think the most traditional crowd, you know, you go to Del Mar in the summer, obviously not this year, but you know, it's more of a, a beach bum, young, hip dress up, you know, kind of crowd. And so each track can vary from place to place. And, and, you know, those crowds are obviously more in tune to just playing a win bet, you know, or, or a show bet or whatever kind of thing. But, uh, I, I would think that you can kind of tell who the groups that are really into the betting part of it and who are just kind of out there for a nice day. I, I think it's pretty easy to spot. I mean, they usually got their materials. They're usually focused in there. A lot of times they're discussing, you know, we had, uh, uh, Lee Davis on the show who was on that horse players show. And, you know, he, he always goes to the track with his group of guys and they sit there and they back and forth about every horse and every race. And, you know, they're not watching the simulcasts and, you know, looking for whatever's running next in two minutes. I mean, they're real in tune with what's happening on track and they're trying to handicap out, all the races and their bets. And, you know, they're just, uh, and to me, those are some of the best racing customers, right? The people who are just in love with it. They're, they're there with camaraderie of being at the track, uh, but they're also, they're there to bet and to, to hopefully go home with some money. Do you have a consensus within the industry or the folks that you talk to about sports betting? And obviously as it proliferates across more and more States in the U S now, is it something that's seen as the enemy? Is it something that is hopefully a, a crossover type thing? Or, or how are people in your world talking and thinking about it? I remember when it was legalized, all of the powers that be were saying, this is going to be a great thing for horse racing, which was when I knew that it would not be a great thing for horse racing. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, for instance, my company, I was I was actually doing my show for Bet America and Churchill bought Bet America, and Bet America has now become more their sports platform, and Twin Spires, of course, their racing platform. So I kind of got moved over to Twin Spires, which is great because I, I think the brand is awesome, and I'm you know very proud to to work for them. But uh, I I don't see a ton of overlap in terms of people who bet sports coming to racing as I do people who bet racing going to sports. I think the overlap is going to be the other way. And part of that is, is because obviously the juice is less. And part of it is I think sports are a little bit more of a universal thing. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, my mom used to uh, own a poker room in Seattle. Like that was her business. And so since I was a little kid, I would go in there. My dad would always go in and play. And it used to be that you would go into the poker room and 50 to 80% of the guys there between hands were reading the racing form or had just been at Long Acres or were talking about the races. And now 
there's zero crossover. I mean, there's maybe the the three or four guys who have been doing it for 30 years that play both, but uh, the poker crowd is completely different now. I mean, they're basically a poker only crowd, but some of them still know sports and sports are more of a cultural thing, I think. So, you know, guys that think they know a little bit about football and are gamblers, I, I think there's no reason to see they won't go over and make a few bets on Sunday for the games. Whereas I think that diehard football fans are not peeking over and seeing, oh, look, they're running at, uh, you know, at Penn National right now. Let me <laughs> let me take a handicap of this card. You know, so I, I think that I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Uh, I've heard from others that think it is, but um, I think it's just a better priced wagering option and and something that's just a little bit more culturally relevant at this point. Uh, I, I would kind of rather see racing spend its time trying to improve the betting, lower the takeout, trying to be good to our existing customers. And I think if you do that, that's when the new customers will start to come in. Uh, if new people are coming into the game and all they're hearing from the current customers is how tough it is, I, I don't know how eager they're going to be. You know, I mean, like with poker, when the poker boom happened, it was because part of it was because we were seeing all these guys that were making a lot of money. I know half of them were blowing it back on other stuff, but you know, you didn't know that you just saw, you know, TJ Cloutier made a half a million last night. Da, 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 da. And so you don't see that in racing, like go around and, you know, find all your friends that are winning horse players. You know, I mean, there's, there's more winning poker players within five miles of the Bellagio than there are in all of the U S I, I truly believe that in terms of horse players. Uh, and you know, I think once we can start celebrating more people that are beating the game regularly, or at least are, you know, doing better, I think then it will be a lot easier to bring in new people because they'll actually see people that are having good experiences with it. Yeah. So one final question on that and, and bringing in new people, how do you see the next, you know, three, five years on the horse racing content side? Because I am an avid horse racing fan. I listen to your podcast and, and that's really about it on the horse racing side, mainly because I like a mix of, you know, I want to hear what people think about the races, of course, like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And get some numbers and picks and whatever else just for a bit of fun but the most important part which seems to be the least covered is is hearing from horse players or if you want to hear from trainers or you want to hear from jockeys or you want to hear from administrators or you want to hear your opinion on a lot of these things there isn't much of that do you think anything will transition in that direction or do you think forevermore we'll just be six from four from three in race one seven from two from eight in race and just that type of uh more dry content yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously the pandemic kind of throws everything a little bit goofy because it's just hard to predict what's going to happen with anything. But um, I mean, I, I know from our our show's ratings, when we have a good or interesting horse player in the show, the ratings are higher than if we have a good or interesting jockey or trainer. And that's not to say I don't love hearing from jockeys and trainers because I do. And, and I think they're, uh, you know, they're obviously a huge part of the game. But uh, I, I, I do think there is a, a craving for for good gambling content out there. Um, I, I wish there would be a little bit more of an investment in that. Uh, and the other thing is, I mean, a lot of people who are doing the hiring, you know, for those kind of things, they're not they're not betters. And so they're kind yeah. I mean, I see a lot of people and, and I don't know if this is true in other areas because I, I don't see it in poker. Usually in poker, the people that get hired as the experts are people who have pretty proven track record of winning, where in racing, a lot of the people who are hired as experts, they don't necessarily have a track record of winning. They're kind of just an expert by information, I guess, but we don't really know that they're actually out there beating the game. I mean, there's, mm. there's certainly nobody that I can think of that's a professional horse player. That's also doing, 
you know, the content or broadcasting side of things, at least that I know of. Um, and, and that speaks to one, how hard it is to be a professional horse player. And, but also two, you know, uh, I, I just don't know that there's people that are going for those jobs that are, you know, qualified for that in that sense. But, but, you know, as far as the people who are doing the hiring, you know, they know so-and-so has a reputation as a good handicapper and, and that's, you know, but that might not actually mean the person is a sharp horse player. They, you know, they just, you know, there's a lot of people that can go out and recite the daily racing form and what's in it and preview each race. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot of people that actually have good opinions. Uh, I was fortunate at Monmouth to work with a guy, Brad Thomas, who I think has an incredibly good opinion, but also has a good opinion uh, about when to bet. I remember I would sit with him and do the pre-race show and people would come up to him, Brad, who's your best bet today? And he goes, well, I don't know. I haven't seen the odds yet for the race. And they <laughs> would think they would think that he was like kind of brushing them off when in reality he was giving them the right answer. You know, he, he yeah. might really like the number two in the fifth race, but if number two gets bet down to, you know, three to one, it's not worth it for Brad to bet it because he thinks the horse should be five or six to one. And, you know, and that's where he's going to, you know, try to make his bet. And so uh, there are there are some folks out there, I think, that do a really good job. And there's there's by the way, there's a lot of people in racing, I think, that do a great job at broadcasting and content and stuff like that. Uh, I just don't know that we're hearing from a lot of actual experts. And, and I don't even consider my I mean, I certainly don't consider myself an expert at betting, but I think I. I, I think I can do a good job of facilitating conversations about it. No doubt. And that's the final thing I wanted to mention. They should go and check out the Jason Beam horse racing podcast. If you're on iTunes, it's the big blue square. You'll see it straight away. <laughs> um, just tell us very, very quickly at the end here what the makeup of the show is, because I listen to a lot of episodes, including and especially the horse player episodes. And I think this audience might be interested in a lot of those. Yeah, we do a, a thing called Horse Player Thursday, where essentially I'd say 85 to 90 percent of uh, Thursdays we uh, we have you know a horse player on of, of of different types too right some are public handicappers so and, and it's more of a you know so it might be more of just a story of their life and betting and then others you know I'll really try to pick their brains about their processes whether they're model guys like Tony or uh, we had a guy on Dennis Montoro a couple of weeks ago who you know that's his whole thing like he he was like I he goes I couldn't tell you who you know Arrowgate is or who maximum security is I, I know you know what my model tells me and, and you know there's guys that have different approaches so we really try to uh you know to bring as many horse players in both just to kind of help create community to make awareness of, of who I think are the most important people in our game but also be hopefully to sometimes be educational and you know a lot of times the open of the show if there if I see something interesting in the betting uh of any track if, if I think it can be a useful conversation to help people think a little more critically about how they bet and about just the world of betting, then I'll do it. But, you know, we, we mix anywhere. We had Brian Hernandez Jr. on yesterday who won the Bluegrass Stakes this weekend, which was the big race at Keeneland. Uh, you know, we'll have trainers on all the time. We'll have broadcasters, race callers. We try to try to be a good mix of, uh, of horse racing folks. You know, we had a breeding segment last week that was a little bit different than what we normally do. So uh, the beauty of having, you know, five days a week is I can kind of sprinkle in, you know, everything I want. And, uh, you know, there, there's sometimes I'll have guests on who I know the listeners aren't going to be too thrilled about, but I want to talk to. And I, I really believe that good radio comes from part of it comes from the host being as interested and excited as, as the listeners. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you got to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, <laughs> got it's to a, challenge your audience. Indeed. Indeed. Jason, thanks for coming on. It's been great chatting. We have plenty more topics to get to. So potentially next time we'll have to cover all of those, the road ahead for racing and maybe some of the challenges, but I know you have a long drive ahead of you. So good luck with that. Thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, 2,800 miles, pal. It's going to be a long one. <laughs>